Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we aim to inspire you, to connect you with like-minded colleagues, to innovate and push you out of your comfort zone, to create robust debate, to encourage lifelong learning, and to empower you to create more impact as a dietitian. Hello and welcome to today's Dietitian Connection webinar. My name is Marie Ferguson and I'm the founder and director of Dietitian Connection. It's a pleasure to be with you today. A very special thank you to Early Life Nutrition Alliance for supporting today's webinar. And now to introducing our special guest today, Melanie McGrice. Uh, Melanie is an Australian advanced accredited practicing dietitian with over 20 years of experience and the founder of the Early Life Nutrition Alliance. And Melanie and I have known each other for many, many years, and it's a great pleasure to have her with us today. Her success has led her to being awarded the coveted Australian Dietitian of the Year Award in 2018 and has made her an in-demand practitioner, researcher, author, and speaker. And Melanie's professional network is extensive um, both here and in the U.S., She's been a senior media spokesperson for the Dietitians Australia for more than a decade, and she's served on multiple boards. And while Melanie's interest for working in early life nutrition somewhat stemmed from personal reasons, her passion grew when she understood the difference that diet can really make to the epigenetics of our babies. So welcome and thank you so much for being with us today, Melanie. Thank you so much for having me. So let's get straight, dive straight into some... (laughs) Sorry? At this crazy time of the day. Yes. We're both in Australia, so it is very early in the morning for us, um, but lovely to be with you all today. Um, So let's dive straight into some questions, Melanie. Um, Can you tell us what is early life nutrition? Yeah, sure. Um, So early life nutrition uh, is often known as the first thousand days. So it's that period from preconception through pregnancy and into toddlerhood that give or take adds up to around a thousand days it depends when you start this uh this thousand days and when you fit and when it concludes um so i personally uh like to include the preconception period and i usually like to um recommend that we're seeing clients for at least three months prior to conception um but and then anywhere up to two to three years of age so that's thousand days um, has been shown to have the most influence on people's lives um, and in particular on genetic programming that then goes on to influence our likelihood of our immune system, um, our baby's um, future problem-solving abilities, their cognition, um, their risk of chronic health conditions. Um, It all actually stemmed back a lot of the original research came out of um, the Second World War, in particular in the Netherlands, where there was an area that was blocked off uh, and went into famine for a short period of time. And then what they subsequently found was that 50 years later, the babies that were in utero in that period of time actually had a significantly increased risk of uh, chronic diseases Um And then a whole lot of research unfolded uh, to find that this period of time over the first thousand days was just so important for future health. And so um, 
Yeah, so it's this period of time, like I said, of preconception, pregnancy, and then childhood. Mm, it's such a great period that dietitians can really make an impact in. It really is. So for me, um, I was uh, doing a couple of different roles. I, I was uh, working clinically at a hospital, um, mainly doing outpatients at that stage, particularly in bariatric surgery, working in an obesity clinic. Uh, I was doing my own generalist private practice and I was a media spokesperson um, in in Australia. And what I found was that uh, the media were always asking questions like, what are we going to do about this obesity epidemic? What are we going to do about these rising rates of allergies? What are we going to do about uh, the increasing rates of diabetes, um, et cetera, et cetera? And there was really no concrete answer. Um, and at this time, I actually uh, started working on a book, um, had a, a, an opportunity with some major a major publishing house in Australia, and they um, and I put together a book uh, about nutrition during pregnancy. And so it was through my research writing this book that I really learned about the impact of genetic programming in the first thousand days. Um, and that sparked such an interest in me because, to be honest with you, I was actually getting quite frustrated with my career as a dietitian at the time. You know, I became a dietitian to help people and and I just didn't feel like I was making a difference anymore. Um, you know, you'd see clients and it was like an ever-evolving window. Um, the clients were unmotivated for change. They didn't feel like they were really getting massive results um, no matter what I did as a dietitian. And so um, when I wrote this book and, uh, and it actually paralleled with my own fertility journey at the same time, all of a sudden I discovered this area whereby clients were incredibly motivated because they weren't doing things for themselves, but they were impacting the nutrition for their future baby. And they a lot of them were um, really wanting to conceive. And so to be able to give them that result of getting pregnant was so satisfying as a clinician, as a dietitian. Like I, I was actually able to see the difference that I was making. Um, and then for my pregnant clients, um, their outcome was a healthy baby. And again, that is the most rewarding thing. And so now working in this space, I find that I'm getting clients who are um, sending, like I'm the first person that they tell that they're pregnant to or, uh, you know, they send me photos of their newborn baby with just, um, uh, yeah, just so much joy in their heart for my impact on their journey. And it's just been the most rewarding change that I have made in my whole entire career was to pivot and specialise in this space. Mm. And I, I can tell that. I know you're so passionate about the area. <laughs> Um, was there anything else that led you to specialise in the space? Well, going on from there um, to, to yeah, be totally candid is I actually ended up adopting. And so my little girl um, is amazing, um, but she came from a, a background whereby she had no prenatal nutrition at all. Um, she she was actually born addicted to drugs, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, and her mother was uh, was very 
uh, malnourished during pregnancy. And so pretty much everything that I talk about, she was born with the opposite. Um, so for me, um, my research in this area is just so personal because I want to be doing everything that I can to optimise her future health knowing the difference that early life nutrition can make. And also I've just got such a, a drive to be able to tell other people um, about the difference that, that these first thousand days can make. And I think that there's such an opportunity for dietitians. Um, so I actually termed the coin fertility and prenatal dietitian um, about 10 years ago now. And it's absolutely taken off worldwide. We're now seeing dietitians specialise in this space around the world. Um, when I started working in this area, uh, really most people who wanted nutrition advice for fertility were going to see naturopaths or maybe talking about it with their doctor, um, whereas now we at Early Life Nutrition Alliance are really working on educating healthcare professionals on the role of fertility and pregnancy dietitians and, and the huge difference that we can make during this period of time. Already getting lots of questions, Melanie. Um, but I think <laughs> people are really keen to know about the fertility side of things. So, how can fertility dietitians work with clients who want to fall pregnant or are having difficulty conceiving? Yeah, well, um, there's actually quite a few different ways, and so we've developed a model that we call the uh, the four stages of, of opportunity for fertility clients. Um, so, if people want to jump over to the Early Life Nutrition Alliance website, you can actually see the pyramid. Um, but for those uh, of you now who are listening in, um, if you just imagine a pyramid and then at the base of the pyramid, you've got your stage one. So they're clients who are just thinking about trying to conceive. Um, and that's where we can really make a difference in terms of helping to optimise their fertility and, as I was saying, about genetic programming because you've got to remember that the egg and the sperm, they are the that's going to be the future genetic material for the baby. And so you want that egg and sperm to be as healthy as possible. And it's actually interesting, um, uh, uh, Jennifer Aniston just made some big comments in the media recently about uh, having wished that she had have frozen her eggs um, and then that that's impacted her ability to be able to conceive now. Um, and, and so one of my messages to people at the moment when it comes to egg freezing is, don't just freeze your eggs straight away. Like see a fertility dietitian first because, again, that egg is going to be your future baby or one of those eggs is going to be your future baby. So you want to optimise its nutrition prior to freezing it. Um, so that's level one. Level two is for clients with dietary conditions. So we've known for decades that uh, dietitians can make a humongous difference in terms of things like polycystic ovarian syndrome and endometriosis, Crohn's disease, celiac disease, um, type 1 diabetes. All of these conditions have significant impacts on fertility. And so dietitians can make a huge difference there and, and can even make the difference between whether or not somebody ends up going for IVF um, or gets pregnant naturally. The third level is those clients who are undergoing assisted reproductive treatments. Um, so that's things like taking medications to help them ovulate and so forth. Um, and their dietitians um, can, can have a look at the fertility journey and see where the problems are for that particular client. So is it 
the health of a man's sperm um, that needs to be optimised? Is it a woman's eggs? Is it her menstrual cyclicity in that she's not ovulating regularly? And there's loads that dietitians can do there um, in terms of helping to optimise hormones to assist with ovulation. Um, or is it the fact that um, a woman's embryo isn't implanting properly? Um, and that could be, say, down to inflammation of the uterus. Uh, so there's things that we can do there. Um, or is it that she is uh, having regular miscarriages? Um, it might be that she has undiagnosed celiac disease, for example. So there's a lot that we can do in terms of problem solving for those clients who are having problems with their fertility and need to undergo assisted reproductive treatments. And then the top level, level four, is for clients who are undergoing IVF. And so those clients um, are obviously feeling really stressed. They're usually paying a bomb for every cycle of IVF. And so they want to do everything in their power they can to optimise their IVF cycle. Um, and again, over the last decade, there has been an increasing amount of research coming out about the role that nutrition can play and how we can help clients to get the best out of their IVF cycle. So there's a huge amount that we can do in terms of um, optimising fertility for couples at all stages of the fertility journey. Mm -hmm. Um, Jody's asking a question, what's the recommended evidence-based diet to improve fertility outcomes? Um, great question, Jody. It really depends on what the problem is. So as I was saying, there's so many different things. And so dietitians working in the fertility space uh, really need to be great problem solvers. It's not just putting everybody onto one particular diet. Um, Saying that if I was going to choose one particular diet, it would be the Mediterranean diet uh, in that there is some great research for Mediterranean diet uh, when it does come to fertility. There's also um, a very famous study uh, that a book was written on um, called from Harvard University called The Fertility Diet. Um, and a lot of research has gone on to investigate that in further detail. And that found uh, that essentially for, for women with ovulatory infertility, um, which means that they were having problems with their cycles, um, and this is based on the Nurses' Health Study, that there was a 69% improvement through making just five dietary changes. Um, and that was five out of 10. So there's quite a range of different uh, dietary interventions, but that included things like having a low GI diet, um, having plenty of monounsaturated fats in your diet, uh, making sure you're meeting your folate requirements, things along those lines. Um, and, again, they're all things that that work quite well um, with the Mediterranean diet. So that's always a really good place to start. And a question from Amanda. So how can nutrition impact egg quality and are there any particular supplements you recommend? Um, so remembering that an egg is a cell. And so uh, we can, like any cell in our body, we can optimise um, our cells through good nutrition. Um, but further than that, one of the biggest problems, particularly as women get older, is oxidative stress. Um, so oxidative stress impacts upon uh, the chromosomes of the egg to determine whether or not somebody is going to conceive. So as women get older, they're more likely to have more oxidative stress from years of pollution um, and 
your previous bad dietary decisions, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so more likely to have more chromosomal damage. And so that's one of the main reasons, not the only reason, but one of the main factors that um, the older that we get, the harder it is to conceive. So um, antioxidants have been shown to be really beneficial for particularly women over the age of 35. Um, so that can mean uh, really optimizing somebody's diet in terms of making it an antioxidant rich diet. And as a dietitian, I'm very pro dietary interventions first um, and then adding in supplements as need be. Uh, but there is some, some good research around um, different antioxidant supplements. Uh, so, for example, um, ubiquinol or coenzyme Q10 is one of the primary supplements that we would use for women over the age of 35 to help them optimise their egg health. Mm -hmm. um, any recommendations for choline supplementation? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there is more and more research coming out about the benefits of choline um, for mainly during pregnancy. Um, and particularly one of the biggest benefits when it comes to choline is uh, around a baby's brain health. And so this is where, uh, again, one of the things that we can do as dietitians, we get uh, saying in, in terms of this early life nutrition, first thousand days period, is really helping to optimise a woman's diet during pregnancy to then give her baby a head start in life. And what mum doesn't want to be doing that? So choline is certainly a, a really important nutrient when it comes to um, both neural tube defects and also baby's brain development for their learning abilities later on in life. Um, again, the optimal scenario is mums getting their choline through diet um, and eggs are going to be one of the best sources of choline in a woman's diet. Um, it's particularly women who... Uh, who follow vegetarian and vegan diets who um, who are going to be at higher risk of not meeting their choline recommendations. And choline in itself is a very large molecule, so it's quite hard to put into a prenatal multi. Um, so some prenatal multis have it, but they don't always have it in the correct dose either. Uh, and so that's where um, for choline, you, you really need to look at a mum's dietary intake, see how much she's getting from a dietary perspective, have a look at her prenatal multi, see how much is in that, um, and then decide whether or not you need to be adding in additional um, choline as a supplement into their diet. Often if they're experiencing loads of nausea, morning sickness during the first trimester, it's not going to be a high priority, um, but particularly so in the second and third trimesters, it would be often be a supplement that I'd think about adding in at that stage. But this is where we need dietitians who really have that expertise in fertility and prenatal nutrition who can, um, who can know uh, how to interpret people's diet for specific key nutrients like choline um, and then provide that personally tailored advice. Mm -hmm. Just skipping back to co um, Q10. Q10. What, yep. what are the dosage recommendations there, both for females and males? What I um, usually recommend, because again, we're talking about um, an antioxidant. So we're really wanting to surround uh, those eggs with the regular hits of antioxidants. So you can actually buy um, ubiquinol in 150 milligram doses. So depending upon the individual client, if there's somebody who is actually up going for their IVF journey um, and is quite happy 
like maybe they've failed multiple cycles and and so they're really willing to do everything they can to get the best results then that's where I would be putting them on a usually um yeah multiple uh, so getting them to sort of take their their ubiquinol at least four times a day so they're spreading it across the day um, another interesting thing that I do find though is it's interesting when you see uh, like fertility specialists and, and other healthcare professionals who don't really have that expertise in nutrition, they'll be putting people on supplements like ubiquinol um, after the egg collection's already been done when they're going for a transfer. And at that stage, there's no benefit at all of taking this supplement. So it's really about timing the right supplements at the right time. Um, and it becomes quite a journey for uh for yeah, putting people on supplements and taking them off them when you're looking at that pointy end of the mm -hmm. pyramid where people are, have gone through multiple cycles of IVF, um, yeah, yeah, and really exactly. trying, desperately trying to conceive them. Yeah, it really needs to be personalised and tailored to the person and, and which part of the journey they're in. Um, yeah. Amanda's also asking, is there any benefit to taking CoQ10 for a woman who's under 35 having trouble staying pregnant? Um, yeah, so if it's to do with their egg health, so again, I'd be wanting to have a look at what's going on for the client. Um, so if they're likely to have some type of oxidative stress in their in their diet, um, so particularly women who uh, maybe haven't had a very healthy diet in the past, um, and again are having those regular failed cycles of IBF, that would be somebody who I would consider putting onto ubiquinol. Um, if it was someone who was uh, just starting out their fertility journey and in their early 30s and um, or late 20s and, and generally healthy, then no, I wouldn't worry about a supplement like that. So that's where, it, yeah, you really want to be doing that individually tailoring. Mm -hmm. Can you spell out that supplement? So you ubiquitol. Oh, <laughs> <I'll have to laughs> testing you at this type of the time of the morning. Yeah. Uh, so U B I Q U I N O. Um, so, yeah, U-B-I-Q-U-I-N-O-L. We actually have um, a fact sheet bundle, as in Early Life Nutrition Alliance has a fact sheet bundle, um, which we are making available as a free gift for people who are listening to this. Um, and so, and we'll make sure that there is a fact sheet on CoQ10 and Ubiquinol in that fact sheet bundle for you guys. Um, I'll make sure that we double check that. And so, um, yeah, people, if they want to go to Early Life Nutrition Alliance slash uh, fertility fact sheets, then you can get access to that. That'll answer um, your questions around that. Just talking about PCOS, um, what foods would you suggest to eat and avoid um, with someone who's got PCOS to help them fall pregnant? Um, so. I think, again, it's one of those questions of it needs to be individually tailored because there's actually four different types of PCOS. Um, so you want to be looking at um, is somebody actually struggling with insulin resistance uh, or have they got the type of PCOS where it's the lean PCOS? Um, so if they do have insulin resistance, that can have a significant impact like a domino effect on other fertility hormones. Um, and so that's going to be probably your number one concern is how can you help to optimise their insulin? 
So there you're going to be wanting to look at uh, their glycemic distribution across the day. Um, we also, of course, with PCOS, want to be having a look at uh, there's more and more research now coming out around the gut microbiome and how that has an impact on PCOS. Um, so uh, before somebody conceives um, uh, probiotics, um, there's particular strains of lactobacilli that can have an impact on PCOS. So that might be something that you want to consider, particularly for more of those lean type of PCOS. Um, uh, another thing that I will often look at now is there's been some great research done into a supplement, and I know you said diet, but um, there has been some great research into inositol. Uh, and so, um, and not only in terms of carbohydrate cravings, but also in terms of optimizing ovulation and egg health. So when it comes to PCOS and the client who's trying to conceive, um, that is a supplement that I do often consider for, for that cohort of clients, um, particularly, again, those who um, have the insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, yeah. Mm, excuse me. It is, again, about really tailoring to our clients' needs what's going on with their diet. Um, but, yeah, there's a lot that we can, can do there as dietitians. And what, what about men and their fertility? What role does nutrition play there? Oh, a huge role because, again, we need to remember that uh, sperm health is going to, like the, the sperm is the other 50% of this future baby. So, again, really wanting to optimise um, a man's sperm quality in the lead up to conception. So uh, for the sperm, it takes around three months for that sperm to be developed. Um, so you really want to be working on with a man for at least three months prior to trying to conceive. Um, probably the biggest impacts uh, on sperm health tend to be weight and alcohol intake. Um, they have a huge impact on sperm health. But then again, when we're talking about men with um, different sperm problems, that's when we get quite specific. So, for example, um, if men are having, uh, say they've got um, very low sperm count, uh, then supplements such as uh, folate can actually make a difference in terms of sperm count. Um, so this is where we'd then be, first of all, looking at a man's overall dietary intake and then having a look at particular micronutrients if um yeah, if, if there were actual problems in terms of his sperm count or motility or, or what have you. Sorry, just jumping back to PCOS, PCOS. Can you name that supplement again? People have just missed the name of it. Did you mean inositol? Yes, inositol. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so, and again, um, we uh, tweak the type of inositol um, from preconception through to when somebody is actually pregnant. So the best research for women who are trying to conceive um, is a 40 to 1 ratio of dechiro inositol to myo-inositol, whereas when they're actually pregnant, there's great research to show that um, myo-inositol by itself can help to reduce the risk of gestational diabetes um, during pregnancy for women who are at high risk. So, again, there's so much that we can do as dietitians that just isn't known in the general community um, about what we can do to 
first of all, to help to reduce mum's risks during pregnancy of things like gestational diabetes and preeclampsia. But then secondly, to help to optimise baby's outcomes. So, um, for example, reducing the risk of allergies uh, by having adequate omega-3 during pregnancy um, and by um, introducing allergens during pregnancy. Uh, so making sure that mums are consuming foods like nuts and eggs, so those al highly allergenic foods, making sure that our mums are consuming them regularly throughout pregnancy helps to reduce a baby's risk of, um, of developing allergy, allergies in the future. Um, yeah, uh, eczema is, a, is another one. So for mums who have previously uh, or, who, you know, who've got um, a high risk of eczema, uh, so say, for example, their husband had eczema as a child or they had eczema as a child. Um, if they've had another baby who, who really struggled with eczema, then I would work with that mum on making dietary changes through pregnancy to decrease the risk of her, her baby in utero developing eczema as a baby. So it's quite incredible, really, mm -hmm. the power that dietitians have during pregnancy. Absolutely. Um, got a few questions around inositol. So that again, the dosage and are there any um, inositol rich food sources? Uh, there certainly are inositol rich food sources. Um, so uh, quite a few. Um, I believe oranges is is one off the top of my head. Um, essentially, though, even with the uh, even with the inositol rich food sources, um, I. It's one thing where I do use a supplement as opposed to uh, going to food sources for inositol because um, based on the research, you're just not going to get enough from food to be able to meet the requirements needed for PCOS. Um, so that is something where I do go straight to the supplement as opposed to looking at the food sources. Um, and... So the recommendations are more around the uh, more around the the ratio um, for for that um, fertility stage. Um, then during pregnancy, we recommend two grams of inositol um, per day. Which uh, <laughs> there have also been safety studies done on that, um, and the safety studies are much much higher. Um, so it, it is quite a safe supplement. Um, it's really when people are, are getting it's more like tenfold that 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 sup, that side effects can start to develop. So that has been shown to be quite a safe supplement for during pregnancy. And you know, it's not just inositol that can reduce the risk of gestational diabetes as well. Um, there's a lot of other things. So, for example, uh, another thing that <clears throat> excuse me that a lot of Healthcare practitioners don't know is that having too much having too much iron during pregnancy can increase the risk of gestational diabetes as well. So, I mean, there's so many supplements out there these days, and so many doctors uh, and people who don't know any better put um, clients on iron prophylactically during pregnancy because obviously women need such high amounts of iron during pregnancy. But if they actually end up with too much, that can increase the risk of gestational diabetes. So it's really about, and this is, again, where you need people who are experts in this area so that you're not having too little, but you're not having too much either. Um, mm. And it's actually interesting to note that the guidelines for iron recommend that 
iron isn't given um, during pregnancy unless it's needed. Uh, and that is so often uh, ignored. Mm. There's so many things to consider. Um, a question from Whitney, are there any common myths that you see around diet and fertility that you'd like to dispel? Um, any misinformation that you commonly hear from your parents, for your patients? I think that's really ah. interesting. <laughs> yeah, what a great question, Whitney. I love it. Um, so I think probably that iron example is quite a good one. Um, there is actually another one that jumps to mind, and that is uh, about probiotics during pregnancy. So there was actually a Cochrane review that came out a couple of years ago uh, that found that uh, probiotics during pregnancy can actually increase the risk of preeclampsia um, during pregnancy and may even increase the risk of gestational diabetes during pregnancy. And so often I find that clients come to me on probiotics thinking that that's going to be a beneficial thing uh, for them to be taking when in fact it, uh, the Cochrane evidence shows that it's not. So I think that's a, a big one. Um, another one uh, in terms of fertility is turmeric. Um, again, I often see people going on to turmeric thinking that they're doing a great thing. You know, it's very anti-inflammatory. Um, but there has been research shown um, that it can actually impact upon, uh, upon fertility um, in a negative way. So, um, yeah, so I <laughs> don't recommend turmeric um, in large doses. Um, and even if people are cooking with it on a daily basis, I, I don't recommend that either. Uh, so there's some, I guess, more specific examples. But I, I think one of the ones, we actually did a research study with uh, obstetricians um, into their beliefs around nutrition. And mm. it was fascinating because uh, we asked them, you know, do you think that nutrition is important during pregnancy? Mm. Obviously the answer was yes. Uh, and and so then essentially we asked them, so do you refer to dietitians? And this was done quite a few years ago now. And the answer was generally, no, we don't. Mm. And so we said, well, why is it? Why aren't you referring to, to dietitians if you believe that nutrition is so important during pregnancy? And the general um, consensus came back was that, well, because our clients aren't sick, they are actually, you know, they're healthy when, when they're pregnant. And so therefore they don't need to see a dietitian unless, of course, they get developed, they, they develop gestational diabetes. That mm -hmm. tends to, to be the one caveat. And so uh, the Early Life Nutrition Alliance, we're really, um, <laughs> one of our main goals is to turn the tide around and create a culture whereby it becomes automatic that when somebody's trying to conceive or when somebody is pregnant, that they go to see a fertility dietitian or a, or a pregnancy dietitian, a prenatal dietitian, because not because people are sick and because they need help, but because of the incredible prevention that we can do um, in this space. And it's been interesting to see over the last decade how that really is starting to change, how more and more obstetricians and fertility specialists are seeing the huge difference that dietitians can make with their clients um, mm. and are really looking for uh, great dietitians who are specialising in this area. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, just there's a, quite a few questions back to e eczema. Um, and oh, yeah. Is there any other nutrition interventions diet that you'd suggest to prevent eczema during pregnancy? 
<laughs> there's a lot. Oh, I've actually yeah. written a whole literature review on this. And uh, so I think there's about 20 different components of, uh, of things in the literature. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, so, so probably one of the most important was vitamin D. So when um, so when a mum is deficient in vitamin D during pregnancy, that that can significantly increase uh, the risk of a baby developing eczema. Um, and so that's not just during pregnancy, but also um, during lactation as well. Uh, and so that would probably be one of my primary um, primary interventions in terms of reducing risk factors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We turn to pregnancy now. Is there any other sort of nutrition advice or key things that you look for when women are pregnant to optimise um, their nutrition? Yeah, yeah. so um, again, a lot. So it depends when they're coming in and, and what they're coming in for. So, for example, uh, I just think about some of my clients this week. Um, I had a client who came in, um, she was just over the end of her first trimester uh, and she said that she was barely eating anything because she was so concerned about um, about what she can and can't eat the the rules out there around foods like hummus and fish and uh, and all of these really salads and all these really healthy foods and really felt that she couldn't eat anything. And she, in fact, was losing weight uh, during her pregnancy as a result of how restrictive her diet had become. Um, so I really needed to not just give her those black and white rules about, okay, don't eat hummus. Well, hummus, um, it's not that you can't eat hummus, it's that you need to know how to make it so it's the tahini and hummus um so tahini is obviously made out of sesame seeds sesame seeds are um retain a lot of moisture so that's where listeria can uh, can develop and so um you can either make hummus yourself by making it without tahini at all in which case like and it's still great um you can roast the sesame seeds first and then make your own tahini from that uh, and make your hummus from that um, or you can also um, make it with a nut butter instead so you've got three options uh, so it's not that you can't have hummus you just need to make it yourself uh, utilizing one of those three options and so um, it's little tips and tricks like that that really help clients to be able to then have the freedom to be able to eat normal healthy foods um, so that's just one example of a client that I saw this week uh you know clients come in with everything from having problems with hyperemesis gravidium which is where they're vomiting all the time in their pregnancy um so like coming in with different problems like gestational diabetes or preeclampsia um to those precautionary things so uh again you know there's a lot that we can do as dietitians in terms of nausea and constipation and reflux and all of those types of side effects there's a lot that we can do in terms of um, optimizing weight management through throughout pregnancy, which not only goes on to help um, a mum during pregnancy, but also her baby's risk. Um, I mentioned earlier that I used to uh, work in the weight management field, and we, particularly with bariatric clients, um, and I was amazed to learn how much of 
of uh, weight management is hormonal. So even when clients, and this is really where the haze movement has come out of, is even when clients um, are eating a really healthy diet, they uh, if if their genetic programming is such that their hormones um, cause weight retention, then there's really very little that we can do to treat that. But there's a huge amount that we can do um, when a mum is pregnant to reduce the risk, even if both mum and dad currently have high BMIs, um, there's a lot that we can do as dietitians to reduce the risk of baby developing that same uh, phenotype. So, for example, um, having too much protein throughout the first trimester of pregnancy significantly increases the risk of baby um, developing weight problems down the track. Um, also, mum gaining too much weight during pregnancy or too little weight during pregnancy. Now, obviously, we don't want parents stressing about their weight and we also need to determine whether weight gain during pregnancy is fluid or whether it is actually caloric weight gain um, and so we don't want to be stressing all of our clients out about weight but this is where by working with a dietitian and us helping uh, clients to be looking at um, making sure that they're having that healthy diet you know so many mums uh, turn to you know during pregnancy you're exhausted and so so many mums then turn to convenience foods just because they're they're too tired and they don't actually understand the repercussions that that can have on their future baby so there's a lot that we can do there as well mm, so fascinating I think yeah. there's another interesting question from Cynthia mm -hmm. how much impact does a surrogate which is becoming more common have on mm -hmm. the embryo development after implanta implantation that is a fascinating question. Good morning, Cynthia. Um, well, so quite significant in that, like I said, it's really the first thousand days. And so both parties will have an impact on the future epigenetics of the particular baby. Um, the mum who's provided the egg, obviously her egg health will will play a role but then during pregnancy the foods that mum is eating can also have a significant impact so for example a baby's taste buds are developed at around um, 15 to 16 weeks gestation so early on in the second trimester of pregnancy and so um, the research shows that what mums eat during pregnancy in that second and third trimester your baby can actually taste and that actually goes on to impact the types of foods that or their food preferences later on in life um, and in fact there was a really interesting study that was done that looked at uh, whether a child's diet um, in early primary school so around that um, around the age of six uh, whether it was most uh, most um, similar to dad's diet, mum's diet, or mum's diet in utero, and it, it significantly reflected mum's diet in utero. So getting back to the question around surrogates, that's going to be one example of a huge impact that a surrogate uh, will have. Mm. And you mentioned the um, protein in that first trimester. How much is too much protein during that period? Uh, well, again, that's where we really need to individually tailor our advice. Um, so this is where prenatal dietitians need to be able to not necessarily do the calculations to dictate, but to be able to provide a guideline. Um, and so, again, if I bring it back to my clinical experience seeing these clients, I see both. 
I see some clients who um, are experiencing so much morning sickness that they're just not having any protein at all during their first trimester. Um, I see other mums also who, you know, follow vegetarian diets um, or plant-based diets thinking that they're doing a great thing but not meeting their, their protein requirements. And I'm sure that all of you guys see those types of clients too, but during pregnancy it's particularly important. Um, and then I see clients who are um, maybe following a high-protein, low-carb diet during their first trimester and having too much protein, or those who um, think, oh, I'm pregnant, therefore I need to be really increasing my protein intake. And so they're then supplementing their diet with protein shakes and protein bars and um, protein balls and all those types of foods and therefore having too much protein. So we don't need to be dictating it down to the gram, but we do need to be working out a client's protein requirements uh, and then guiding them based on, you know, their height and weight and physical activity and so forth to and how many babies they're having. You know, if they're having multiples, they're going to have somebody having multiples is going to have significantly higher protein requirements. Mm -hmm. um, in general, it's 175 grams a day. So, you know, that is like uh, – 175 grams of protein a day that's really hard to achieve so mums with multiples need a huge amount of help uh, from a dietitian to meet those types of requirements mm. and what would your recommendations be for weight loss during preconception um, to help with falling pregnant that's a really interesting question actually um, because again it depends so um, there is a, a significant amount of research that shows that if clients are overweight, then reducing weight prior to conception can often increase their fertility. Um, and so there are times when I would actually use rapid weight loss diets um, that we know only have a short-term benefit, but they only need that short-term benefit to help with fertility. But then there are also times when we don't want to be doing that. So um, if somebody is actually, so the research suggests that uh, rapid weight loss um, may impact upon egg health. So what you don't want to be doing is doing a very rapid weight loss diet uh, in the lead up to an egg collection, for example, um, because that could potentially impact upon the oocyte or egg quality. So we actually want to be in those circumstances um, yeah, doing any rapid weight loss early on or else just focusing on slow, um, healthy, very minimal weight loss. It's also interesting to see that the ideal BMI for fertility is actually a bit higher generally than what it is typically. So we would generally say that a healthy BMI is between 18.5 to 25. For fertility, it tends to be more like 22 to 29, so a bit bit higher window. Mm. And from Shannon, what about athletic mums? Have you seen any higher needs for supplementation? Uh, that's such an interesting question. Um, so athletic mums um, often really are quite a high-risk group when it comes to fertility uh, because they can – um, they can have red S, so reduced energy uh, syndrome, whereby they um, 
whereby they're not meeting their caloric requirements and that can impact upon their ovulation. So uh, if uh, a mum who is exercising a lot, they don't even have to be, um, you know, they don't have to be a professional athlete, could just be somebody who is exercising a bit more than the average um, and they're watching their weight and so forth, that can actually impact upon their menstrual cyclicity and how often they're ovulating um, and they can find it really difficult to conceive. So this is where sometimes those higher body fat levels can make a difference. Uh, and the research around, um, around that can be that it can actually take up to two years to uh, re-regulate caloric intake and re-regulate um, ovulation again. So uh, they're a really important cohort of clients to be coming and seeing a dietitian. And there's quite a few questions around probiotics. Is there anything, any more information you could share on the use of probiotics, either preconception or during pregnancy? Uh, certainly. Um, so like I was saying, probiotics can be really beneficial uh, pre-pregnancy when clients are trying to conceive um, there is more and more research coming out about the benefits of probiotics particularly for endometriosis for PCOS and for um, vaginal dysbiosis so uh, when when women have um, problems around the the um, the the, their um, microbiota, uh, particularly in, in their vagina, um, can have an impact upon their fertility. Um, so it can be a, a really great time to be looking into different types of probiotics. Um, we actually have a fantastic webinar on probiotics for fertility uh, in our, on the Early Life Nutrition Alliance website. Um, and then... But during pregnancy, unless somebody specifically needs it, so maybe later in their third trimester. Oh, sorry, my little one's just woken up. No, most <laughs> um, safe. So if you can hear crying, sorry, I'm just going to see how we go. Uh, yeah, so later in that third trimester, I, um, can, I sometimes consider it or if somebody's got a real problem with dysbiosis, then I might consider it, but otherwise I try to try to do without probiotics during mm. pregnancy. I think we've got time for just two more final questions, and um, one of them is around. I, I don't think there's a certification for fertility and prenatal dietitian, um, but there probably should be. Um, well, we uh, the Early Life Nutrition Alliance we actually offer specific training um, so for dietitians uh, in this area. So um, we run a fertility course. It's called Nutrition Therapy for Fertility once a year and Nutrition Therapy for Pregnancy once a year. Um, they're very intensive eight-week programs only for dietitians where you can really learn to specialise in these areas. Any other resources, um, training, um, journals, yeah, we um, again have a uh, we have a, a, a journal club, um, and so if you go to the Early Life Nutrition Alliance website, uh, you can click to join. <laughs> sorry, you can click to join. Um, that is a free journal club. 
Yay. Hey, Grace. Oh, it's very early. <laughs> it is very early. Um, yeah, it's a free journal club that people can, that dietitians can join. Um, and that's a great resource because we give, we provide a synopsis of, um, of journals, uh, recent journals that are relevant to a particular topic every week. Um, and so it's a great way to keep up to date in, in this space. Wonderful. Great timing, Grace. Um, that's all we've got time for today. I want to thank everyone so much for joining us. We hope that you've enjoyed today's session and got a lot out of it. I know Jamie in the comment box said, um, oh, no, I've lost it. Um, it was just she was learning so much. It's all so fascinating. And I, I couldn't agree more. Um, so thank you so much, Melanie, for joining us today to share your insight and expertise in this very important area and, you know, impacts our future generations. So it's so important that we can get dietitians involved in this um, first thousand days. Um, yeah, thanks for having me, Marie. Um, uh, yeah, as I said, it, it really is so important for dietitians to to move into this space because it's only when we have more dietitians who are specialising in this area that that's when um, we're going to be able to have that impact and that fertility specialists and obstetricians will start referring more and more, well, they already are, but um, they'll have the experts to refer to. And so um, we really want to change the culture, as I said, so that it becomes the norm for every couple to see a fertility dietitian before they can see Wonderful. Thank you, Melanie. And thanks to Early Life Nutritional Alliance for supporting today's webinar. Most importantly, thank you to all of you for tuning in and we look forward to seeing you again next time. To get all of the links and resources we discussed in this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review and a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. Tell us what you thought of this episode, what you learnt, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We value hearing from you, and we really appreciate your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.